Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and forgotten American taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast, your only source and hope of independent conservative talk here on a brand new week, Monday, February 24th. And before things get busy and we get crazy into the week with 50 million issues, policies, political issues, I really wanted to start the week off with something special. And when I say special, I don't mean in a good way, but in a very important way that we need to get right. There is a raging, raging polydrug crisis in this country that affects every facet of our lives. I mean, 70,000 people dying a year. The cost is enormous. It ties into our sovereignty. It ties into crime and gangs and violence. So much of the violence in our inner cities that we're seeing resurgence is because of the drug crisis. As we spoke two weeks ago with a victim uh, who lost a daughter from fentanyl in Ohio, this crisis is really evolving. It has already evolved. It's taken quantum leaps in terms of the type of people it sucks in, the type of drugs we're seeing, the different ways they're gotten into the country and maintained in the country and, and constituted here. And with our policymakers spending really an enormous amount of time at a federal and state level dealing with this and spending money on it, we really need to define what the it is. What is the nature of the crisis? What is it not? And what we really need to be doing about it. Some of you might have seen, and I, I didn't have a chance to get to this uh, at the end of the week, but on Thursday, the Drug Enforcement Administration announced in Atlanta that they had seized 1,300 pounds of crystal meth in the Forest Park area outside of Atlanta. This was a big meth lab just right in a what I believe is a residential neighborhood. Enough meth for 2.3 million people. Um, meth, as you guys well know, is not an opioid. It's really kind of the opposite of an opioid. It's a psychostimulant. So this is really an evolving problem. They call it an opioid crisis, but in about 19 states, the largest numbers of fatalities from drugs are really from meth. So what is going on here? Well, with us today is someone who could really give us in-depth knowledge None other than the DEA special agent in charge of Atlanta himself, Robert Murphy. Uh, Murphy was with the DEA for, for about 23 years. He's been a special agent in charge the last couple of years, has dealt with narcotics for, for three decades. So has certainly seen the full picture and evolution of this crisis. Uh, Mr. Murphy, it is certainly an honor to have you on the show for the first time. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it, Daniel. Good morning. Yeah, really appreciate you taking time with uh, this busy seizure going on. So obviously, people hear DEA, they hear drugs. It's like, yeah, okay, they always catch drugs. What was unique about this bust that that your team did uh, in Forest Park on Thursday? Yeah, great question. I mean, what, what's unique? Like you said, DEA, we always seize dr uh, drugs and we display it. And we expected to seize a large amount on this one based on the information we had. What we did not expect to see is what we found when we went into, the uh, again, a residence in a residential community. It was a rental property. We went in and there was uh, over 1,300 pounds of 
crystallized methamphetamine finished product and active methamphetamine conversion lab. And there was probably 100 gallons more in process, which on that conversion rate, you know, we estimate about five gallons, I mean, uh, five pounds a gallon. So, you, you know, potentially four to 500 more pounds of this that was in process. Um, this was a staggering amount of uh, methamphetamine or any drugs for that matter to be found in, in a residential uh, residence that far in the interior of the United States, meaning not a border seizure where it's coming across this, this way into the interior of the United States. That is a staggering amount of meth and or any drug for that matter. Now, now these are meth labs we're seeing. So am I correct that, you know, back in the day we had American meth labs right here in the country. Then the Mexican cartels really got in on it and started sending it over. But isn't it true that now you have them bringing it over the, the cartels that is in liquid form, but then they also have the labs here reconstituting them? Yeah, they bring it over many forms. Um, you know, you touched on it. 2000, you know, prior to 2005, I think it was 2005, the Methamphetamine Act, where, you know, now when we go to buy pseudofedrin for our kids or for us, we have to display our license anywhere and get it. Well, that pretty much eliminated all what we would call the mom and pop labs that were devastated in the U.S. I mean, everybody was making their own meth and it was, you know, a huge problem. Well, that was a very effective law and we don't have methamphetamine uh, production labs anymore. But what we do, and the Mexicans have completely taken over. They're using industrial-sized labs in Mexico. All of the chemicals, the precursor chemicals necessary, the hard-to-get ones are being shipped from China to Mexico. They're mass-producing the meth. So what normally we're seeing is meth is, is easily concealed in the sense that it can be transported across as, as in a powder form or a base form or what you just referred to as a, a, a liquid form. And we see that. So what we have here in the U.S. now is a conversion uh, labs where they got to take either the powder or that liquid meth and convert it into what they want, 100%, generally close to about 100% pure crystallized methamphetamine. And what it looks like, they literally crystallize, and it looks like uh, crystal ice shavings, um, real clear. And, and that's the most potent purity uh, methamphetamine, and that's what the users want. So that's what's happening in the U.S. now. And it's very vital. The chemical chemicals used to, to uh, for instance, we talk about this 1,300 pounds, but on, at the press conference we had on display about a week prior in Cobb County, which is another uh, big seller outside of Atlanta, the local police and fire responded to an apartment fire. And when they got there, they discovered a, a conversion lab. Uh, so they contacted us. We went there, but what we found that was interesting was cases, multiple cases of uh, candles with CBP inspection tabs on them, meaning they had crossed the border, been inspected by CBP and allowed to come in. And when we looked at them, all those candles were made out of wax and they were melting the wax down and then doing, going through the conversion process. So there's so many ways the Mexicans are smuggling this into the U.S., but they need these conversion labs in the U.S. to get to the, the product that the end user wants. So that's what I wanted to get to in terms of the law enforcement side and how to deal with this. So, you know, they're very innovative. We have open trade. We're always going to have products coming into the country and it's going to make it very hard if I mean, my gosh, they're doing it through wax candles. 
So that's going to be very hard to stop at the border. But but like you said, then they have to have these labs inside of our country. Now, you have labs in Mexico where there's large swaths of the country that are kind of lawless, where the cartels really have more control than the government does. But when you come onto our side, how is it that they're able to operate this way? What type of networks are they, are they and what are the impediments to us detecting them? Well, the, the cartels, unfortunately, have a very uh, significant presence throughout the United States. As a matter of fact, they're operating in every state in the country. Um, but what DEA has identified, and we, op- we uh, announced Operation Crystal Shield to target this, is, you know, we thought, hey, wait a second, everybody's been talking about this opioid crisis, but we, we've seen dramatic increases in just, I think, in, in 2017, we had 50,000 pounds of uh, methamphetamine that was seized, and in 2019, we seized 112,000 pounds as an agency. That 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 That's a shocking, I think it was a 130% increase, a shocking thing. We said, wait a second, you know, we got to make sure we're all front of this, and the public's aware of this. So why is it happening? The cartels, they're, you know, unfortunately, they're giving what the American consumers want. Right now, they, they want cheap, highly pure drugs, uh, and methamphetamine checks both those boxes. Um, so... Yes. What DEA realized is obviously we got to fight it. It's a global problem. We got to fight it uh, at the base where it's being produced in Mexico. And we need our partners for that. But when it gets here in the U.S., what we looked at it is there's eight major cities, what we, we in DEA refer to as hub cities. And that's where the cartels have a huge presence. They operate just like they do in Mexico. They control distribution, money laundering, uh, you know, uh, Enforcement, when, when I say enforcement from their standpoints, it's uh, keeping people online kind of enforcement. Um, they, they have a strong presence. There's eight hubs what they d- then will use to mass distribute this across the country. And we r- realize if we don't get it there, then we're really fighting, a, uh, you know, the finger in the dam kind of analogy. We've got to get at these hubs and, and crush them then. And Atlanta happens to be one of them. And there's eight major ones. And, and these are you generally hubs for poly drugs, what we refer to as poly drugs. It's not just any one drug. And Mexican cartels are, are selling in every drug. There's not one drug that is specialized by any one cartel. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's certainly the issue. Atlanta is a big hub for not just the South, but the gateway to the whole East Coast. And what we see in my part of the country, uh, with, with which is, yeah, I mean, it's it's cocaine where I am in Baltimore. It's certainly the opioids in, in uh, New England and Uh, meth in West Virginia, all over the place. Um, When you look at the type of people that you bust in these areas, so are they, are you getting cartel members or are they more like Serrano's 13 gang members or are they more locals? What what type of people are you busting? Cartel members, no doubt. We've got the high, here in Atlanta, we have the higher echelon of the the cartel membership. Um, we, We exactly know who we are. For instance, on this one, um, we arrested an individual inside that was running the lab, and then the person responsible for it, uh, we got him a couple days later when he was heading south to go back to Mexico. I think we got him about 45 miles north of the border before he was going to be in Mexico. We got him just uh, south of San Antonio. So, yeah, it's it's cartel leadership, um, and that's who we target. We don't see um, at our level. I'm sure it happens. We don't see 
that much uh, the gang level that you hear about, uh, you know, often talk about that's at the street level. We're not working mm-hmm. that level. We're looking command. We're working at the command and control level. Of DEA. We're trying to get it before it gets to the street level. So I, I, I just want to deviate here just to, to criminal justice for a minute. I, th- I think that's a very interesting point you made. I often hear from a lot of people. Um, they talk about the federal prison population. Oh, it's driven by these people who are, who are on drugs. And there's too many low-level drug offenders in prison. I said to myself, well, if they're in federal prison, that usually means the DA is targeting them. Um, and, and you're telling me you, you guys wouldn't even have time, much less priority, to target those type of people. So these are all high-level people you're targeting. Yeah, I mean, that that's an often way overplayed statistic, and there's a lot of reasons before on it. I can get into it, but you're not in federal prison because you had a possession of a, a, a joint or even a <laughs> you know $25 bag of weed. Matter of fact, if, if we even tried to bring that, there was we would never do it. But if a DEA agent walked into the U.S. Attorney's Office to present a case like that, a mere possession of any drug, for that matter, um, of a you know what we would call a recreational basis, you get laughed out of the U.S. Attorney's <laughs> Office. Let alone you know having a DEA supervisor question what you're doing here. I mean, we we are DEA is in business to it's a national security issue. Uh, so we're not worried about, you know, the guy in his underwear smoking a joint in his basement. We're worried about the, the threat to the country as it comes from organized criminal organizations that are taking advantage of the United States because we are, you know, the best place to operate when it comes to making money and, uh, and you know, taking advantage of the freedoms our country offers to allow some of this, you know, crime to uh, proliferate. Sure. No, I mean, that, that that makes a lot of sense that obviously you guys wouldn't have time for the low level people, because I was just wondering, trying to trace back the last number of years, last few years where it really seems like if you plot this on a graph in any way, the number of fatalities, number of people going to ERs, the number of Narcan um, dispensing, it just, it's just it's gone crazy. It's just something that we always talk about drugs, but we've never seen anything like this the last couple of years. I always wondered if part of it is this schizophrenic attitude on the part of some of the politicians. So on the one hand, they all universally talk about the opioid crisis, which, again, is kind of funny. They don't talk about meth as much, but, you know, they talk about, oh, we we have a major problem. But then in the same breath, they're all about, oh, we need criminal justice reform. Okay, well, it's a very vague term. And then they start almost stigmatizing drug laws. And we're certainly seeing this in California and other places. And I'm just wondering, is that a big part of what has um, removed the deterrent against some drug trafficking that a lot of them just don't fear reprisal? Dan, you just hit on a big issue. I mean, I'm not just a, a DEA agent or, you know, I've, my whole, entire adult life I've been in law enforcement. I started out as uh, local law enforcement. Now I'm at the highest levels of the federal law enforcement. I have been fighting this and, I've, and the majority of my time has been fighting drugs. You know, I cringe at the poor messaging that we send as leaders. I'm, I'm a father, too. I don't want my kids involved in any kind of this uh, this drug. We all know the outcome. It doesn't end well. I mean, methamphetamine, you know, we talk about opioids. At least there's, I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but there's another drug you can take to help you get off the opioid addiction. With meth, there is no other drug to help you get off it. It is a, it is a behavioral, the only way you're going to, you know, to undo a, a, a meth addiction is a behavioral change and it's not easy to do. So there's no, you know, silver bullet. And, you know, you talk about a bunch of issues that is affecting us that you saw about the overdose death and everything. The one thing that nobody is really looking at, and it really is 
shocking in this country is just look at the foster home and what the impact it's having on families and kids. We're, I mean, foster homes are bursting at the seams of kids that are leaving unstable environments that we have to, you know, the state or somebody has to take the kids out of a, a you know, a, a, an environment where both parents are addicted to drugs that, you know, they can't take care of the kids. And it's a huge problem. And these and kids are being born with medical issues that we've never seen before or at the levels that we're seeing because of drug use during pregnancy and everything else. You know, I think the messaging, listen, I came up and I'm, you know, I'm sure you're the same thing. And I think if you said this now, you look back when I came up to school, it was just say no, very simple concept. Yep. You say that now, people laugh at you. You know, no, if you just say no, that's the bottom line. You know, we, we're not going to solve this enforcement only. We, we need to stop the demand side. There's no doubt about it. Sure. And, you know, some of the Mexico will say it sometimes, hey, we're only giving you what you're consuming. Some part they're true on that. But the messaging we're sending to our kids, everything's good, everything's legal. It's, it solves every known, you know, take this drug. It solves every known thing, uh, every bad thing, every, uh, every disease known to man, it'll, it'll cure it. Uh, you know, helps with this, helps war veterans come over. It's just terrible, terrible yes. messaging. So when you stand up before a bunch of kids and try to tell them, you know, hey, no, this is bad, don't do it, yet everybody in the, every other media thing you're seeing is showing this, is, no, it's great, it's natural, it grows in the ground, it's, it's healthy. You know, that's why we have the vaping issues and we have every other issue. I mean, it's just, I, I don't know when it happened. It's, it, it's uh, and we're paying the consequences for now as a nation. Yeah, because, I mean, if you look at the timeline, it's somewhere around 2014, 2015. You could source it a little bit before that, maybe where things just went nuts, took a quantum leap in just the usage, the overdoses. And I, I'm always trying to look at, and I know I'm throwing a lot of issues here, but what happened around that timeline? And, and several things have happened over the last number of years. One of them is this real decriminalization agenda, which, again, is not just from a law enforcement standpoint, but also, as you said, a cultural standpoint. It's almost sometimes almost like I feel stigmatized even speaking out against this stuff. Like, hey, it's just drugs. Like, what's your problem? You know, really with marijuana there, everyone's into it now. Um, and they say there's no problems with it, but then, you know, you're seeing everyone taking the more substantial drugs. You got to wonder how much of it started with that. Yeah. I and mean, there's no doubt. And here's the thing, what we're seeing now is the purity and the strength of these drugs. Most of the drugs that we're, we're seeing addiction to are synthetic. And that's a scary, scary thing. Methamphetamine mm. is a completely synthetic drug. It's made, you know, in, in laboratories in a jungle. I've seen it made in bathtubs. I mean, you're looking at, and these aren't, you know, uh, scientists that you would want to be, you know, they're not pharmaceutical companies that are mass producing in clean labs. These are in a jungle, you know, high, uh, people have never been, barely have a high school education, let alone, you know, a doctor's degree or, or any kind of engineering or medical engineering degree. Um, so, yeah, we got very high purity drugs, low cost. And that's a terrible and easily available. That's a terrible uh, combination. I mean, it is dirt cheap. I'd say about five years ago, a kilo of methamphetamine, six, seven years ago in Atlanta was selling about 28000 a key. It's selling for four to $7,000 a kilo. And the purity is through the roof. It's close to mm. 100% pure. So that's a scary combination. And we have people that are willing to do it. You know, it's a high that lasts for 12 hours. So, you know, so there's a lot. I, I don't have all the answers. 
I can just tell you from a law enforcement standpoint, what we're doing, you know, people always say, oh, just legalize it. We, you know, we can't win. You know, I laugh when I hear that, you know, I don't know that we want to become the country that we, we, we don't fight things anymore because we're afraid we can't, we'll never win them. I mean, it's like saying, you know, ever since banks have been around, they've been robbed. So why do we, st- <laughs> why do we stop trying to prevent bank robberies? I mean, it's just, it, it makes no sense. And we got to have norms. We got to have things that are worth fighting for in this country or we don't have anything. That, that, that's really interesting because I mean, it just, just until recently, I mean, certainly a decade ago, we, we were already saying we were saying this 15, 20 years ago, the war on drugs isn't working. But now I'm like, hey, I would die to go back to the time where we said it wasn't working because there's not working. And then there's, well, really not working. And when you have in some of these cities, just the needles being passed out openly around like in San Francisco. So then it's an it's a totally different ball game where it just the numbers are are through the through the roof. And um you know, you're talking about meth here, but I'm I'm assuming a lot of that demographic is a little bit different than than with the opioids. What I want to get your comment on is this mother we had on the show two weeks ago from Ohio, classic case in Ohio. Um, and I, you know, I never grew up with this stuff. No one in my family ever took it, would dream about taking it. So I always thought of these people as just a bunch of druggies in back alleys. But certainly as it relates to the opioid stuff, so her point was that there are thousands of people like her, middle class families, upper income families where, you know, they never fostered this or and, and their kids would not even think of doing this, shooting up in an alley. It's not something they would do. But because of what they produce now, often in pill form. So her daughter had a crust, crushed spine from an accident where a porch fell over and it was a freak accident. And ironically, in Ohio, they really, really clamped down on prescriptions, legitimate prescriptions. And she couldn't get any painkillers. And she made one mistake. And that mistake cost her her life. Someone she trusted said, hey, this take this stuff. It's just as good. And it was literally a pill. But it but it turned out it was fentanyl and she was dead. Is, is yeah, that, I mean, what, are you seeing a lot of that? Yeah, well, we see now on the street, you know, a couple of things. And I want to go back to one of your comments after this question. Uh about the the war and if we can win it mm-hmm. um, okay the uh so back to, to your point on, on uh, we you know unfortunately we're seeing the demographics the drug abuse the overdose we don't see a demographic issue it's across all demographics it's across you know all wealth <coughs> all levels of wealth it doesn't matter where you are it, it's penetrated that completely the what we're seeing, unfortunately, on the street now is pretty pretty good counterfeit pills being made by the Mexicans where they look like pharmaceuticals that you would take that I think people were more um, – that were abusing prescriptions. And now you're seeing pills that look identical to it. You couldn't tell the difference. But one pill is 100% the other, uh, of fentanyl, and the other is le- the legitimate. Um, so you're playing Russian roulette. You get the 100% – you know, fentanyl pill, uh, you sell it to some kids in school and they think it's their mom's, uh, something out of their mom's medicine cabinet and it's a counterfeit pill that's made from 100% fentanyl, it's not going to end well. And that's what we're seeing. But, you know, I, I use this analogy. I think this sums up the problem. It's not even an analogy. It happened to me. You know, uh, I was at a Christmas party in a neighborhood and I'm sitting here listening to the story 
and his mom was talking about her daughter playing soccer and she had, she had an injury in a tournament. She wanted to get in the tournament and her mom said, you know, she happened to have some pain pills left over and they were just trying to get the pain under control. So she could finish that weekend, the tournament, you know, obviously she was going to, she thought she had aspirations of being good enough to go to college or whatever. So the mom and the dad and the son, they're at this Christmas party and they're saying, yeah, we gave her some of my pills. And they said we had the most fun because she got so high and we were laughing all night at her because she was saying all kinds of loopy things. And I'm cringing when I'm listening mm-hmm. to the story. This They meant nothing bad. They're not trying to drug their kid. It was just they were looking at the outcome of it, you know, the laughter of it. And I'm sitting there cringing saying you just drugged your child who, you know, it, we don't know who's going to be more uh, uh, inclined to be drawn into addiction than others. And it's, you know, it, that, that's, I think that's a great story to say how innocent it can start out and then how much trouble it's going to lead to, you know, and it, I just cringe when I heard it, you, you know, sometimes you don't wave the flag to your DEA because you don't want to be the life of the party. But, uh, you know, when I'm listening to this, I just, I cringe when I heard it and just said, you know, that, that sums up the problem here, um, how it starts. And, and then once it's out of the gates, like it is now, now it's just chasing the fix. So so the concern that I have, if you look at the mix of what government has been doing, aren't we headed for the most lethal possible outcome? So on the one hand, they're going they're clamping down like anything on prescriptions. Now, I've seen studies out of Massachusetts, but I think this is true in many states that that only about one, two percent of the fatalities have come from legitimate prescriptions on that. It's almost all illicit drugs and even even the prescriptions are often, you know, diverted. They're on the black market. So they're they're really clamping down on that. So, you know, often people that need them can't get them. But then on the law enforcement side, well, you got the sanctuary cities harboring the criminal alien networks. You got the decriminalization agenda of, well, we shouldn't lock anyone up for drug trafficking. Well, I mean, isn't that a lethal mix where, you, you know, you take away the prescription stuff and then you really make available the illicit stuff? It seems to be seems for my end to be asking for trouble. Well, let me let me make sure I clarify something, Daniel, what you're saying, because I think I know what you're saying. but I want to make sure your audience is hearing, uh, you know, first off, DEA doesn't clamp down on prescriptions. We're not in any way interfering with a doctor's right sure. to prescribe drugs. Um, we don't get involved in that at all. That's what HHS. we do clamp down on is doctors that are issuing illegal prescriptions and taking it for money. And, and I, I never ceases to amaze me how many doctors are willing to give up, uh, you know, decades of education and everything and their, and their reputations in the community to sell, basically become no better than a street drug, in my opinion, worse than a street drug dealer. And we see it time after time. And this isn't for medical necessity reasons. This is purely for, and what we see oftentimes it's divorce, it's a girlfriend, it's, you know, whatever, trying to load up before they end the practice and ride off into the sunset. It's just greed is what it's saying. What DEA does do in consultation with <coughs> the manufacturers in Congress is we listen and say, what, okay, what, what is the level of, uh, of any one drug, especially when we're talking about uh, controlled substances, have to be produced to service the needs of the country? And they set that limit, and DEA says fine. And that's the limit. So we're not setting the limit, you know, arbitrarily. It comes across. So believe me, there's plenty of uh, uh, opioids being produced pharmaceutically, legitimately, 
for the needs of the country based on the, you know, all the input the DEA gets. What we have is an addiction problem and any clamping down on prescriptions, that's the doctors trying to uh, probably be less permissive mm. than they have been in the past. So, so you're saying what you, what you deal with are what are essentially just drug traffickers disguised as doctors, uh, the same way the Mexican cartels uh, would, would, would traffic this, whereas this stuff, all these horror stories of people really being denied um, when you know they have no history of overdosing, there's nothing wrong. It's it's state laws. It's HHS obviously deals with that. Um, yeah, because I'm I'm just looking here from the Journal of Public Health reports a Boston University study. It was 1.3 percent of Massachusetts deaths um, in in 2017 stemmed from valid prescriptions. So they're usually invalid, or again, just obviously the meth and the the other illicit drugs. Yeah. Um, so I yeah. mean, we're, we're not, we're not, I mean, we have the best medical, uh, in the, in the world and we're not, DEA is not trying to infringe on or, or to, to lessen that stature in, in the world. Um, but we do have an obligation to make sure that people that have the authority to prescribe it are doing it lawfully and are doing it within the best interest. And if the medical, the, what we DEA would prefer is the medical community police it. They're not doing it. I mean, you, all these medical boards, we didn't get here because the medical boards were policing this. There's a lot of reasons for it. I don't want to go into it. Um, but having their own police themselves hasn't worked. So then we're going to come in and we're going to police it for them. And unfortunately, you know, everybody looks to us when the problem's as bad as it's gotten and says, what have you been doing? Well, and there's a lot of other things that were broken before uh, law enforcement got, got called in to fix it. So I, a DEA would love to have the medical community police themselves and get this problem fixed. They just have been unwilling to do it because there's so much money, whether you're looking at it from the manufacturers all the way down to the doctor and the retail level. So what, what I can't understand is what this has to do with medical when you when you see meth get get the way it, it is. So, you know, opioids are painkillers or, you know, they're they're depressants and meth is really the opposite. So where does that come from that so many people are just into meth now? Because, uh, I, I mean, I, I've heard stories of people in pain and getting addicted, but usually if you're doing that, you're not going to be taking meth. So where, where, where's that coming from? Meth and cocaine as well. Well, here's the scary thing. We're starting to see other drugs, you know, we, just heroin and fentanyl mixed. But now we've had our first documented uh, seizures from DEA in, in our DEA lab where we found meth and fentanyl mixed. We don't know if it's cross-contamination. We don't know if it was a one-off. But that's a scary prospect. And, you know, like you said, <coughs> excuse me, it doesn't make sense. There are two drugs that counter each other. But if you remember, you go back in the old 70s and stuff, there was a speedball where mm. they would mix those to, to take off the edge, you know, to, to let them function more uh, in, the, in their high and their addiction. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to speculate. But, listen, we have a culture issue where we have a certain segment of population, and it's not a big percentage. I mean, I know it sounds like it when you listen to the news. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I want to think it's like it's less than 10% of the population even uses drugs. But they do, and they use it in a large quantity of them, and they're addicted, and they cause a tremendous amount of uh, problems for law enforcement, for just civil society, and it's a huge cost burden in our medical community and in hospitals, and again, in the foster care system, the school system, everything, it's a huge problem. Um, 
but it's contained to a relatively small you know, percentage of the population. So well, unfortunately, like you said earlier, and, I'm, and this gets back to what I wanted to touch on, like, can we win the war? We were winning. The, u- the user population of the United States was at its lowest point. It was only about 10 years ago. And now we're, we're, I think we've tripled that number. It was down around 4% of the population. Now we're up as much as, you know, like I said, 10, 11, 12%. I can't, I haven't looked at the numbers in a while. So what happened in that time? It's just what we talk about. The, the, the permissive attitude or, you know, it, the just terrible messaging has done this. And I don't think we need to change a lot. We just need to go back to making sure our kids and it's being taught in the schools. We don't have dare programs in the school anymore. We don't have anything. Uh, people don't want to admit that there's drugs in their schools because it impacts the resale of the house. So the school board said so we don't have drug problems. This, <laughs> this unwillingness to address the problem is creating a much bigger problem. Sure, sure. No, and 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 in on our remaining time, I just wanted to go through just some of the other effects. So you you obviously deal more at a higher level, but you were, as you mentioned, a Orlando cop. Um, you worked at, on the SWAT team there, but you you worked in narcotics even as a as a police officer before you were in DEA. So you saw this bottom up. When you start talking about such an explosion of meth, the first thing I think of more so than let's say heroin is street violence. Are you seeing street violence as a result of this? We see all, we've seen an uptick in all the crime. I mean, unfortunately they go hand in hand, you know, uh, it's, you've got opportunists where people are looking to try to identify the, the drug stash houses because they know there's a large amount of cash. So that's kind of what you see in the home invasions. That's what that's all about. Generally they're not random people driving by and seeing a home and let's say, let's go invade it. These are, definitely uh informed home invasions where they know what they're going to get so they're you know invading formal uh rival drug dealers or they found a mexican stash house and they know there's going to be a large amount of money or drugs in there so that's what we deal with and and yeah people robbing for it's all about getting money so they can continue their high so that that's what's that all we see all crime property crimes everything increasing and when i meet with these chiefs of sheriffs around on a regular basis, they're all saying that every, all of their crimes get traced back to drugs. I mean, it just, it's so, it's such a high percentage of their crime traces right back to the problem of drug, drugs, plain and simple. And, and, you know, we see it across the country, a a trend to um, eliminate drug units in police departments and, you know, stick their head in the sand and say, well, if we're not arresting people for it, we don't have a problem. (laughs) And, And that's, that's the solution that, I think that pendulum's starting to swing because it hasn't been working, um, but it's still stuck there. It's got, it's got to break free, break, uh, break free until it makes its full swing back to the, what I would say, a normalcy. You know, I, I started in law enforcement in the early 90s when, you know, the crack epidemic, and I saw all that, and I saw what aggressive policing did. And I'm not talking about, when I say aggressive policing, just smart, get in the areas, attack it on, and yeah. it worked. It yeah. definitely works. This is what concerns me because we, we, we talk on the show a lot about crime, even divorce from drugs. But as you noted, it, it is sort of an invisible hand behind a lot of the crime that, you know, when when murder and violent crime went down 65 percent over two decades in almost yep. every major metro area. Um, yes. You know, in addition to that, I think what's less noticed 
I don't think the success was quite as well with the drugs. It was certainly with the taking the people, the bad guys off the street. But but the drugs were getting better. What we we're doing with the Colombian cartels early 2000s, it really did look like it was getting better. And then this past decade, the pendulum has swung the other way. We're seeing crime go up. I know in Atlanta, um, uh, some of the metro counties had record high homicides. Uh, the governor Kemp is uh, pushing an anti-gang bill now. One of the few governors trying to get tougher on crime uh, because he's recognizing that a lot of a lot of others are still saying, oh, crime's low. Well, it's low relative to maybe the 70s and 80s, but it's already ticking back up. So, yeah, that's what I was wondering if a lot of this permissiveness and the decriminalization, whether it's formally codified into state law or whether it's de facto, really seems to be taking its toll. Well, you can listen. It's funny in the law enforcement community. We all talk. We know what works, and you know this, this trend that we're on now is feeling guilty for our successes, and, and that's exactly what we're dealing with. Policies being made because you know we were extremely successful in eliminating <clears throat> violent crime, drugs, everything, and everything was going great. The cities were, you know, everybody's happy. Well, then we start saying, well, we felt guilty. We we've got too many criminals in jail. <laughs> well, I've never been one to subscribe to that, but when when it when that you know when that pendulum swung back the other way, and we've seen it throughout time, it happens, it goes back and forth. Um, us in law enforcement, we knew it was going to happen. We know the outcome. You know, you start telling police they're not welcome in the community. They're you know they're they're going to be less inclined to go in there and do proactive policing. They'll respond and they'll draw the, the lines around the dead body in the street and they'll try and ask anybody if they saw anything and try to solve the crime. But what we want is presence, deterrence, all the things that we know work. And when you stop uh, encouraging that, there's a, there's a price to pay. And again, I've seen it. I've seen every, I've seen every version of it, uh, you know, going, uh, community policing is important. You got to know the community, but the bottom line is most of the crimes being committed by the same number of a very small percentage of people. And some people just aren't, 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 don't know how to function in, in, in our, permissive society without being a, uh, you know, without committing crimes. And you got to deal with that, that, that you gotta deal population. With that. No. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that, that's the thing. We're not deterring it. And, and if you send the message to the criminals that we are more terrified of the prison population numbers than crime numbers, well, you know, they, they certainly get that message and we're seeing that in a lot of big cities. My final thing I just want to touch on is um and then daniel you know, think sure. about the money we're going to have to spend to write this once the dam breaks i mean once they finally realize oh we got i mean the, the money that we're going to have to spend plus can you attract people to want to go into law enforcement anymore you know you know i, I my degree is in accounting are you going to attract wow. people to want to have a career in law enforcement like i've had an unbelievable career um with the messaging that we're sending, I mean, that, there's some scary things on the horizon that we've got to fix. There, there really are, um, Brian, uh, Robert, and I'll, I'll just tell you from my end, it's it's pretty scary how the pendulum really is one sided, and and it truly is bipartisan. Um, but but you don't need to imagine it. You're seeing it in California. The cost sure. of property crimes now, they have huge problems. The Chamber of Commerce is already talking about this with the theft and the drugs and the vagrancy in in places like like San Francisco and Oakland and all these places. Um, needles all over the streets. It, it just it's not working out. We We have experimented with it. Now we're seeing that in New York as well where a lot of the gains in the 90s are starting to be reversed. The subway crimes are up. 
and it again it does all tie back to drugs but i want to talk about one other one final thing i know you've been very very generous with your with your time uh the, the one final sphere of law enforcement and that is um criminal aliens so you know everything we're talking about with a domestic criminal level is magnified because you know what what's the issue you have the same people doing the drug dealing the drug trafficking and it's catch and release they're in and out and they're going to be back on the streets and we're increasingly not locking them up for as long if at all but when you're talking about other countries criminals so it's even more so because the difference between enforcement and non-enforcement is is greater in the sense that if you enforced it it's what i call broken windows immigration policing forget about the drugs but you're taking them out of the universe you give them over to ice they're removed so you bust up the networks there's fewer of them doing it you would think the prices would go up um, i'm told by your counterparts in in massachusetts for example places like lawrence uh the u.s attorney from there andrew andy lelling talks about this as well as da and ice that so much of the top level trafficking is coming from illegal dominican networks and if they were only just able to you know seamlessly get them out of the country it would bust up a lot of trafficking a lot of times when they talk about sanctuary cities what people miss is that the the single biggest thing that people are arrested for is drugs that that's usually what it is and they just release them back into the communities are you seeing that to be a huge factor immigration enforcement uh, a big factor in terms of the supply line of drugs well i can only tell you i mean first off you said i'm you know we don't fear criminal illegal land we don't fear any criminals i mean especially dea we're, we're going to target the criminals that are selling and are, are responsible for trafficking the drugs unfortunately in the in the drug arena it happens to be predominantly illegal aliens especially here when what we deal with most of the cartel activity um, well, you know, we see that we even see now the Chinese and money laundering, which is a new thing. We haven't, we've probably seen this in the last couple of years, and there's some reasons for that. Um, and and that opens up a whole nother avenue of problem. But we also know the Chinese are supplying the precursor chemicals to the Mexicans. So yeah, we have all the illegal people coming in here. You know, it's easier for them to get into the country, <coughs> and they want to get here because they want to exploit us and make and make money off of our population. And, and sell poison to them. That, it, there's, it's a simple, it's a simple equation, and we got to do, we got to make sure it's not easy to get in here to do bad things in the country. If you listen, I understand. If you want to come here and you want to better your family and you want to get it and do whatever you can, I, I think America's proven it's going to have open arms. But if you're coming here to do ill will, um, and 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 cause wreak havoc in our communities and, and don't care for who or, or what harm you're doing. We don't, there's no place for you here. And we and we should do everything to make sure you, that the, the, the welcome sign is turned off for anybody inclined that way. You know, sure. it goes back to this, the, the war, can we win? You know, the, I keep, now I'm hearing it from drugs. Now the immigration, we can't win. It's a vast border and everything. And I, I just, that mentality, I don't understand where that has seeped into the American culture because we're the ones that win at everything we do. We just said we got to we got to decide we want to fight it. And you know, I, I go to this. It's simple. You know, people pay an awful lot of money to find out what the meaning of life is, and it's pretty simple. It's about the struggle of good versus evil. And there's always going to be evil, and hopefully, there's always going to be people on the other side that are willing to fight it. And we got to win it. And that's just the bottom line. If we want to continue to have the incredible country that we have and live in the wealth that we have comparatively across this country, we got to be willing to fight what we know is not right. 
we just got to fight it and, wow. and, and we got to win and we will win. I mean, uh, we're in, we're in a, we're in, I think it's, like I said, I, the pendulum's still stuck, but I think it's starting to, it's starting to break and it'll swing back, but hopefully the damage isn't too great and we're not going to have to spend, you know, vast amounts of our nation's wealth to try to fix it. Well, very well said. And thanks so much for, for really giving us all that time and going so much in depth. Uh, there's just so many facets to this and it's hard to get it in one show. And I'd love to have you back again. Um, good luck with everything you're doing and please keep us updated. Anytime. Appreciate it, Danny. All righty. God bless. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Robert Murphy, sack of the DA office in Atlanta. Oh, man, I'm telling you guys. Wow. There was a lot to unpack there. I tried to, you know, touch on, you know, the different different aspects of this. But I mean, you heard the last thing he said. Um, you talk about the criminal alien networks. I mean, that that's a big thing. He says predominantly illegal aliens. Remember, when you mention the word sanctuary city. What does that mean? It means we're not going to turn over people who we arrest for crimes. They're not arresting them on immigration because lower I'm not uh, local law enforcement don't do that. It's for committing other crimes. Usually not usually, but I think the most common one is related to drugs. And that 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 is the dirty little secret. So we have this schizophrenic reality where on the one hand, everyone is so into, oh, there's a drug crisis. We're dying. And then. Oh, let's harbor other countries, criminals who are predominantly responsible for the drug trafficking. Oh, and let's, uh, you know, go weak on sentencing and and, and enforcement. Um, and, and for those that say, well, just legalize drugs. I mean, what do you think California is? California de facto is doing that. And it's certainly it's, it's getting much, much worse. It's just not helping. Um, it's a cultural problem mixed with a supply problem. Uh, and, and a degradation law enforcement. And I also do think he did make a make an interesting point that we did start to make strides against this last decade when the, the, the tough on crime laws had they stood up and had we mixed that with finally enforcing interior immigration laws. Again, you're not going to solve the drug crisis. But the idea was there's a huge difference between having 10,000 deaths a year versus 70,000 deaths a year. So um like anything else, you try to mitigate the problem. You're never going to solve the problem, but that's what law enforcement is all about. Let me know your questions, comments, and concerns. Send them to dharwitz at blazemedia.com. If you love these in-depth sort of uh, shows, go to iTunes, subscribe, Stitcher, anywhere you hear podcasts. Leave us a five-star review at iTunes. It certainly helps us. We appreciate it as always. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.